Welcome to Reading Aloud Live, The Satanic Witch. This is episode six or part six or whatever you want to call it. We're going to be starting from chapter seven and finishing the doggone book. And it's been a ride. Five different episodes chock full of not only a really fantastic read, but also a lot of really wonderful interaction with the live audience. So I want to give a big shout out to all of you in the live audience. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining us and adding interaction and color to what could be a very stale book reading, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Uh, Valerian Dog, great to see you both in the chat room so early. Uh, Stephanie, how are you, my dear? It's great to see you. William, thanks for joining us, man. Uh, Ara Michelle, how you doing? All right. Uh, anyone else jumping in after the fact or during the very beginning of this, uh, thank you all so much. We have got, I mean, it's a substantial amount to cover, but, uh, you know, it's not insurmountable. So we're going to get into it. We're going to start with Means of Divination. This is Chapter 7, and we're going to finish with Chapter 8 at the very end, talking about PR. I'm not going to go over the bibliography. Sorry. If that's something that interests you, I suggest you buy the damn book. <laughs> and then I saw um, a very interesting comment on the when I did the Satanic Bible reading. Uh, someone was like, uh, stop your shitty acting. I can't understand or I want to I want to hear the book, not your shitty acting or something like that. I would just make a note buy the fucking book. If, if you don't like my reading of it. Buy the fucking book. The whole reason why I'm doing this is to uh, incite those of you who have yet to purchase it to get off your ass and purchase it. Because my single reading of this is not going to give you all you need to know about it. It's called study, not worship for a reason. You got to study these volumes and especially this one because it's so specific to your type or your target's type, that you will have to refer to it over and over again. So if listening to me reading it just isn't doing it for you, that's fine. Go buy the book. It's going to do you a world of good. Um, Draco, thanks for joining us, Matt. It's good to see you too, man. All right, here we go. We're going to dive in. <clears throat> Chapter 7. Means of Divination. How to tell fortunes when no... I'm going to start that again. Chapter 7, Means of Divination. How to tell fortunes with no previous experience. Every witch should be able to hold her own when it comes to divination, fortune-telling, and popular application of the black arts. Unfortunately, altogether too much time is spent in studying occultism, and far too little energy is expended in learning the practical side of human behavior. The would-be witch, who thinks she will become a wonder worker by studying cards or star charts, had better spend a bit more time studying people, lest she become the victim of her own folly. In order to know man well enough to manipulate him, we must be aware of the forces that motivate him, and it becomes increasingly apparent that the psychic sciences have become a formidable motivation force, actually supplanting traditional religions in many instances. You'll notice that I treat the psychic sciences as a motivating factor in man's behavior. By this, I do not mean to imply that psychic forces are at work impelling man to do their bidding. 
I do mean, however, that the techniques of the individual divinatory arts are but misdirection devices for the competent witch to use as she sees fit. Let's start with the most popular of the means of divination, astrology. Why astrology? What has ensured its popularity? It loses its continuity, um, continuity when any attempt continuity when any attempt is made to correlate its findings to its synthesizer, which seems to fit everything in the apparent demonic core range of the personalities into perfect position, however subtle the gradation may be. Astrologers will argue that their art is not, nor was it ever intended, to type human beings, but merely to relate events to the movements of heavenly bodies. My answer to this is that people make events, and if the solar system doesn't have any bearing on people's activities, then a lot of astrology magazines are sold under false pretenses to millions of people who believe, to a greater or lesser degree, what they read. Before one even attempts to understand astrology or any of the occult arts, he should ask himself, why? Usually the answer will be, because I want to learn what others have not learned. Next. It is automatically assumed that to learn what others do not fully know, one must study that which is not fully known, or at least that which is shrouded in mystery. Again, the law of the forbidden is seen in action. The assumption is always that if there is anything important to be discovered, it will require a long, hard, esoteric search. Actually, all great discoveries are made when they are practically tripped over, stumbled upon, and accidentally uncovered. Despite all the physical evidence of the usual non-esoteric means of discovery in the mundane sphere of our existence, seekers after magical and occult discoveries persist in refusing to overturn the rock which lies at the very feet to observe what might hide beneath. It's too simple, and the mania for the forbidden will not allow it. The greatest mistake any witch can make is to think that to accept and practice the force known as magic, it will be necessary to study great amounts of occult literature. The reason so few competent magicians exist is because most persons who seek magical wisdom approach it from an occultist's point of view. The main reason for this is because what is forbidden is always more fun, and the unknown is about as forbidden as you can get, or it wouldn't be unknown. Anyone can crack a book about the history of Rome, how to make fireworks, flower arrangements, human anatomy, the effect of music in Russian nationalism, or why people commit suicide. What the hell does it matter why people commit suicide, or how people behave in nudist camps, thinks the would-be witcher warlock. That kind of book isn't going to tell me anything I want to know about casting spells. The simple facts of the matter are that such study material is too easily accessible, too mundane, too close to home, and therefore it is not only uninteresting, but also assumed to be worthless from a magical point of view. There are some subjects that have validity, which are pursued by occult scholars, but unfortunately precious few. One example is handwriting analysis. If, however, many handwriting analysts would discard the occult sciences as a supplement to graphology, they would be far more capable Instead of learning the fine points of astrology, numerology, palmistry, etc., thinking them to be a worthwhile extension of graphology, it is far wiser to move on the other direction away from esoteric ramblings.
Well, a study of the stars and their relation to human affairs is about as esoteric as you can get, so a great many people feel that it's an ideal place to start. But why not start at man and work outward, utilizing what we know best as a basis? The astrologer studies far-removed heavenly bodies, then attempts to correlate human activities, behavior, and physical appearance with the distant planets. Why not start with man, the best known and most readily observable phenomenon? Man is the only thing in our known universe with which we can irrevocably identify ourselves. Therefore, it is not correct to assume that all evaluation of personality types and behavior must evolve from a study of man himself. We do not know how other things in our universe, in our solar system, feel. We know how man feels, but do we want to admit to feelings? I say we do not, so we exteriorize them at every opportunity, even insofar as our studies of ourselves are concerned as witness astrology. Instead of typing the known universe, using ourselves as a base of operations, with gradations carefully selected, we seek to discover the nature of ourselves through distant examples. Can man ever really know himself? I say yes, but first he must study himself and others of his species, and even before he studies himself, he must start small. He must study animals that walk on all fours, then graduate to the parallels he can find in himself. This is why I have based so much on our synthesizer, because it measures man and his predilections, and once this subject is known well, the bigger things start snapping into focus. Sometimes these revelations appear frighteningly other times joyously, but at all times accompanied by that unique thrill that comes with discovery. When one considers the reasons, it becomes easy to understand why astrology has become the most popular of all divinatory sciences. Of course, a wise witch believes in astrology, because she knows that most everyone else does. If enough people believe in something, then the successful manipulator will find a way to capitalize on such a belief. Like it or not, that's the way it is. If the competent witch knows where the stars will supposedly lead a person, she can be waiting, first in line. Belief in astrology, on the part of others, is one of the best magical weapons upon which any witch can rely. Even the most skeptical will enjoy and emotionally accept what astrology has to tell them, because anything concerning oneself is always more interesting to hear about than anything else. Instead of telling you, all about the methods of using astrology, I'll tell you why you should employ it. There are numerous books available on the subject, as simple or as intricate as you wish in their teachings. If you learn to cast horoscopes, thereby assuming the role of astrological seer, you will find yourself able to set up and arrange self-fulfilling prophecies with a remarkable degree of certainty. The stars may affect no one at all, but astrology affects everyone. Here are a few reasons why. 1. It is based on a scientific principle. The solar system, mathematics, time, biology, endocrinology, and who knows what else, all incorporated into astrology. 2. It is a consistently available shot in the arm for the ego. 3. It is esoteric. It is easy enough in its daily horoscope fashion for anyone, even the most simplest mind, to understand. Yet it will allow those who wish to go deeper into the theology the opportunity for endless study. 4. It is a socially acceptable conversation piece which will allow gossip a fertile playground in that 
it permits people to talk about others in an analytical way under the guise of studying them astrologically. This is done in much the same way as some psychologists, social workers, marriage counselors, sexologists, etc., will study their clients or patients secretly for purient rather than clinical reasons. Except the astrology buff needs no credentials to do the same thing. Neither does a bartender, but then he does not claim knowledge of an esoteric nature. 5. It is a much more scintillating conversation opener and sustainer than any other popular religion, as it is ego-based. One will find few listeners at a social gathering if he approaches the person he wishes to meet with, What have you done lately to please Jesus? Or, Where were you baptized? On the other hand, Under what sign were you born? Or, You must be a Scorpio, is almost sure to elicit a reply. 6. It's safe in that it is compatible with other religions. One can go to church on Sunday after reading his daily horoscope without fear of even a gentle roasting. 7. It allows man freedom from having to make his own decisions. It has been said by almost all astrologers that the stars impel rather than compel. This means that unlike other gods of other religions, for that is what astrology has become to many, there is no inflexible whip-cracking stern-faced Jehovah but a rather benign guidance from those solar system that allows for human modification by those who are aware. Certainly a much more easygoing way of having someone or something else make decisions for you and guide your destiny. 8. It is flexible in its application. There are no absolutes. Its ambiguity makes it difficult to totally discredit its message. The findings of one astrologer can always be contradicted by another the second astrologer, taking other factors into consideration that the first missed. 9. It has been around long enough to emboss itself on the collective unconscious, so that even if we could ignore it, some of our forebearers most likely could not. 10. It can gain substance by pointing at the moon and its obvious influence and announcing that if the moon can influence the tides, behavior, etc., then so can planets, stars, etc., Likewise, influence earthly situations. This is the very successful trick used by stage magicians. If one sword can be thrust through a previously inspected object which rests within a cabinet, and afterwards the object is removed and shown to have been spared through, uh, speared through by the sword, it is thereby assumed by the audience that the pretty girl who then gets into the cabinet will be thoroughly impaled by the successive, uh, succession of numerous swords in addition to the first one. We must not forget that at one time it was proclaimed that the moon contained lunar armies, strange ships sailing on lunar seas, and it was even made of green cheese, while the same experts also knew the subtle influences of distant planets upon the earth. 11. It can appear valid in that people do act the way their astrological signs imply they must. It is a fine case of the tail wagging the dogma, the planets having nothing to do except provide a rational a rationale for the dogma of astrology, the dogma acting as the controlling factor, not the stars. How many, how many of us, my goodness, have uh, fallen into that trap and still do of uh, listening to astrology? Daily horoscopes. This is what, how Leo should act. These are personality traits of Sagittarius. It is ingrained in our culture, in nearly everywhere on this planet. 
So why not play up to it, right? It only makes perfect sense. Now, again, anything you go into when it comes to um, lesser magic, or in this particular case, divination, if you want to make a buck, just make sure you don't end up uh, buying your own bullshit. I think... I don't think everyone is is inevitably going to believe their own shit. But I think over time, I think it's easy for a certain type. In the same way that some people bloviate their ego and then they start believing that they really are better, more authoritative, more successful than they actually are, smarter than they actually are, better <laughs> readers than they actually are. Uh, I... I, I have over the, because of course, you know, I, 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 and I've said this often, there are multiple ways that, that people come into discovering Satanism. Uh, the most common that I've found are either the atheist route or the occult route. I came in from the occult side of things. I was obsessed with forbidden and ancient knowledge as he's speaking to right here. Uh, and so having tarot card readings or um, paying attention to astrological signs as means of self-identity was just commonplace growing up. It was just what all of me and my little witchy friends and little vampire friends would do. It was just how we lived. It was a normal thing. And so to, to, to say that it was easy for me to shed those foolish ideas... Um, would be a lie. It took me a long time to shake the dogma that I had wrapped myself in for so many years. Um, so much to the point where if I, like, I, I'm, I, it's easy for me to suspend disbelief when watching a film, a horror film, for example. And so when I come home after having watched a horror film, I can freak myself out. You hear sounds in the night. You go out and you think you see something move past your eyes. I don't believe in ghosts or demons or monsters, but I can sure freak myself out over the thought of them. When we had a recent earthquake here, one of the insane things that popped into my head was that scene from Poltergeist with the house being essentially rocked by a, a, a magical force from the Indian burial grave that they were uh, built on. Like insane ideas that just fleetingly pass but it's because of the culture that I sort of wrapped myself in, the dogma that I wrapped myself in. <clears throat> I'm not the only one. <laughs> There's a lot of us who came in from the occult side. I forgot to put that up. Uh, that, uh, oh, how do I, there we go. That you, you do have to unlearn some of the bullshit that was taught you. I mean, it's the same with science, right? I mean, he's calling these, um, uh, occult sciences, but it's not science at all. <laughs> it's just, it's ultimately what it is, is bullshit, but we want to present it in the light that it's expected to be received, right? And so if someone believes it to be a science, we're going to present it as a science to that someone so that they will then believe everything else we have to tell them. It's pretty basic. Yeah, uh, William, that is a fantastic suggestion. Penn and Teller bullshit is amazing. Um, I mean, how they prove everything is bullshit. <laughs> Not just astrology, but that too. 
Uh, okay, so what do you guys think? Did you ever buy into astrology? Did you ever believe in horoscopes? Do you still read them on a daily basis because it brings you some sort of comfort or an idea of control? Uh, do you play numbers? Uh, I mean, there's no shame in it. As long as, again, you're not buying into the bullshit and you're just doing it for personal gratification, there's no shame in it at all. Just have fun. This is life. That's all it's supposed to be is fun. Um, however, if you can make a buck off of it, good on you. Let's do the next one. Cold reading and casing the mark. Cold reading is the old carnival method of telling fortunes, which is not much different from the psychic method of telling fortunes, except it is more accurate and strips away most elements of self-deceit from the fortune teller herself. As a resourceful witch, you should be able to tell fortunes by whatever system you choose to employ. You can be a gifted reader and prophet with no previous experience. It's simple. All you need are a few simple hints about human nature and a good credibility device Contrary to the great racket raised by various con artists in astrology, tarot reading, and the like, it doesn't matter in the least which means you use in your readings. It is your own insight into which you will actually be depending. The most successful seers are usually those who have the least knowledge of occultism. You too can predict the future happenings of your friends' lives just by the application of an easily learned formula. First, if you have no reputation as a seer or prophet, you must obtain a device which does. This will make up for your lack of ability as a convincing witch or warlock. This device we will call the credibility factor. It is sometimes known in satanic magic as the convincer. Many such convincers exist, such as palmistry, tarot cards, tea leaves, crystal balls, astrology, numerology, etc., after you have chosen the convincer you are going to use, you must spend enough time familiarizing yourself with the basics of your device. That is more important in the case of astrology, numerology, and tarot than it is with palmistry, crystal gazing, the Ouija board, and other less involved credibility factors. It is for reasons of simplification that I recommend the less complex convincers to the beginner. The next step is to make up your mind whether you're going to use your newfound powers on your friends and acquaintances, or confine your wonders to strangers and newfound friends. If it is a circle of established friends that you wish to mystify, you must tell them that you have been studying with a witch or warlock whom you cannot name, but has recently bestowed great wisdom upon you. This will give your supposed new knowledge substance when combined with the convincer you have chosen by adding to the convincer another credibility factor, experience. Not yours in this case, but somebody else's. If your soothsaying is to be uh, purveyed to total strangers or recently met friends, then it is duck soup. You need only hang out your shingle as a gifted reader or psychic who has been at it all your life. If your subjects consist of both types, then use both methods respectively, but don't get your signals or your subjects crossed. Now, let us assume you are reading your first subject. Possibly you're using a crystal ball, or instead a table full of tarot cards might be spread before you. Whichever convincer you use must be made to be the very focal point, the object of intense concentration, the most important factor in your reading. It must never appear that you are studying the person sitting before you, even though you are. After all, you are not telling them anything. The cards are. It is a brutally, 
brutally hard fact that humans will not have faith in another human being that bears no credentials. And those silly little tea leaves in the cup give you, well, give what you say more credence than any amount of true insight you might have. After you have gazed thoroughly at the palm of his hand or whatever, then you look into his eyes, take a deep breath, and heavy-handedly prepare to give him the first profound revelation. What is this first great proclamation to be? Simple. The same as most of the statements you will be making throughout the entire reading, or at least half of the reading. You tell him something nice about himself, something he wants to hear. This opens up the gate of emotional acceptance. So immediately, he becomes your friend. Therefore, he will be inclined to believe anything you tell him, because he believes so strongly in what you've started with, nice things about himself. After you've told him a few nice things, you cloud your face all up and get a worried look in your eyes. Now you hit him with the evil forces pitch. Tell him something bad has happened, is, or is going to happen. If you tell him something bad has happened and there are certain forces working against him, he will be more grateful than ever when you imply that you are the person who has been chosen to help him. He will go away feeling that he's finally met someone who understands his problem. If you want to play the evil witch, you can tell him that something bad is about to happen or is going to happen in the distant future. Chances are your suggestion will be followed through and what you suggest will actually happen. Truly prophecy. He's already accepted your words as nice to listen to, so the unconscious is wide open for suggestions when you hit him with a curse, which in reality, it is. Don't be a real victim, though, and leave him with nothing but misery to look forward to. See to it that there is always an out to the mishap you predict. Tell him that everything will resolve itself and things will work out all right. Fortune tellers can be terribly dangerous because in telling a bad fortune, they can actually cause bad things to happen that might not otherwise occur. The most successful readers make the good outweigh the bad in their readings, and you should too, if for no other reason than to keep your subjects as friends. What you actually tell them is not nearly so important as how well you flatter them, even making their faults flattering, such as, many people think of you as rather irritable, but you only appear that way because you've helped people so much who have kicked you in return that it has become hard for you to go around with a great big smile. Using this technique, it will be unnecessary to tell your subjects any real information about themselves, as they will read all manner of accuracy into your readings just from the authentic bits and pieces you might have said which they have picked up out of context. Whatever you do, don't neglect your convincer for any length of time. The deck of cards, lined palm, string of numbers, birth date, or crystal ball is your passport to success. After you develop a reputation for having great psychic powers, then you can rely less and less on the convincer, as your personal powers will become the convincer. It has often been said that the device employed by the reader only acts as a means of diverting the reader's conscious thoughts and thereby opening up the unconscious so that he might pick up the unspoken message from his subject. This is certainly true, but it leaves half the story untold. The other half is the diverting of doubt on the part of the subject to total belief as a result of the credibility of the convincer. Here's a little satanic secret. If you use this diabolical method of fortune-telling, this, uh, this apparently phony means, without self-deceit, knowing full well what you are doing, you will be startled, 
and perhaps even frightened with the amazingly accurate things you will come up with. Try it and see. Uh, I can attest to that. <laughs> I became, um, in my military service, uh, the guy to go to when it uh, came to speaking with the dead. Uh, I created a Ouija board. I don't know if you guys can see it. Uh, no, it's behind the fetus in a jar. Um, anyway, I created a, a Ouija board uh, right after high school before I went into the military. And uh, I used it. <laughs> to such effect. It was fantastic. The Ouija board in this particular case was the convincer, but because I was a foreign uh, entity in this situation, they didn't know who I was. They didn't know my background. All I had to do was spout that I came up in vampire circles and I was told ancient magics and wisdoms and I could use your blood to commune with the dead. And it is covered in their blood. <laughs> Completely completely covered. It's awesome. It's fucking awesome. But it convinced them so deeply that even in my absence, it would still work. It, it was amazing. It, it, it was the most entertaining thing I've ever experienced. And tarot reading, uh, Aura says that she has been uh, tarot reading since she was 15, many different decks and stuff. Um, I picked up uh, the Thoth deck and I've used it a number of times, but watching and i was never really proficient in it um and so i always went to the ouija board as my convincer uh, watching some of my friends that were very adept at tarot readings man they could they could they could paint a picture and divine your future and be incredibly accurate i mean to me so much that it took me years to unwind the dogma about it because it was so convincing Again, using the exact same techniques brought about in this book, it works really, really well. It's, it's pretty awesome. It's not for everyone, again, because you need a convincer device, especially if you're trying to communicate with friends who know your history. They're like, dude, you wet your bed until you were 12. I'm not, <laughs> not going to believe you have psychic powers from the universe. Like, give me a break. We used to watch TMNT together. You know, I mean, it has to be, you know, you, you have to address a foreign entity in order if you're going to jump from the already well-known point, as is uh, wonderfully stated in this. Uh, David, good to see you, man. Uh, Tarot's interesting, although I never really pursued it. It's fun. It's fun stuff. Magic Robot, uh, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. Mr. Ferdinander, what up? Alan, good to see you, man. Okay. Let's do some more. Oh, thank you very much, Alan. I appreciate that. It's very kind of you. I don't know. Have you guys ever had a reading where something bad was foretold and it happened? Or something good was foretold and it happened? Or was there always just like a follow-up reading saying, oh, well, it's still coming. <laughs> it's a ultimately, or, or you can avoid that bad thing by coming back to me every week for the next two years. <laughs> you know, like... It's, uh, it's pretty startling what people will do to avoid disaster, you know, if they believe they're cursed or in danger. It's pretty stunning. I was in a situation once, I'm, I'm going to get right back to this in a second. Um, again, I was, a, I was a young man, I was, I was very stupid, but I was still pretty good at, at convincing people of things. Um, 
because I did come from the background of occultism. Uh, I had was working with this girl um, in I, I was it was Direct TV, which I still think is a thing, but it was uh, tech support, like you know customer service, and um, it, we were in training together. And I was trying to figure out if it was someone that I was going to try to, you know, mess with or not. Um, and she said she had a kid. And so I planted this idea that something bad was going to happen in her family. And she latched onto the idea that it was her kid. And that was too heavy for me to even go near. And so I immediately shut the conversation down like no, no no everything's fine your kid is fine i don't want to play that game like i'm saying to myself in my head i don't want to play that game with her because that's a little too real that's i don't i don't want to fuck with someone's feelings about their children because that now being a parent and understanding it in retrospect that is a powerful powerful force much more than any manipulation that i could try to throw out there and it has much dire consequences if you go around saying something bad is going to happen to someone's kid. Oh, man. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it is amazing, dog. I, and I dig it a lot. Uh, always you have a choice. You're at the crossroads. You decide how to determine what follows. And that therein lies the success of divination, right? Because there's always a chance of anything happening. <laughs> you never know. So you can pretty much make up whatever the fuck you want. And they do. And it works. All right, let's move on. Oh, you know what? Cinnamon chai tea. Ah, so damn good. Prophecy. Anyone who is aware of what is going on now, as well as what has happened in the past, can reasonably predict what will occur in the future. This, of course, applies to world affairs as well as events in a much smaller scale. To be in tune with the world around you is all that is necessary to predict what will happen next. The only fly in the ointment is how many people are actually attuned to the world around them. One must be in touch with reality at all times in order to successfully predict the future. The only other alternative is to fake it. There are several good methods of faking predictions, You'd be amazed at the way some of the most famous seers arrive at their conclusions. The easiest way of doing this is to use two sets of predictions. This is especially simple if you are dependent on news services to broadcast your prophecies. Let's assume you give a great yearly prophecy, telling all important events that will transpire in the years to come. Your proclamations appear in hundreds or even thousands of newspapers. Well, some newspapers might receive one set of predictions to print, obtaining the article from one news service, while other newspapers receive a totally different set of predictions, sent them from another news service. Each of the two sets of predictions are completely different, yet touch upon the same topics. The millions of people who read the set of predictions that happen to be accurate are sure to remember the miraculous workings of whoever happened to be the prophet whose words they read earlier in the year. One of the finest old carnival techniques of prediction is to announce the winner of an election in one town or county, then to announce the opposing candidate as the winner in the next county that the show plays. You can easily see how the seer is bound to be correct at least half of the time. It is in the towns where he has made the correct prediction that the next season around he reminds all the people of his accurate prediction in the event that they may have forgotten. In this way, it is easy to build up a strong reputation as a prophet. 
All it takes is one profoundly accurate prediction to start you on the road to fame. And if you make a hundred predictions, 10 of them will probably turn out right. This is especially true when it applies to births, marriages, divorces, death, etc., involving public figures of great magnitude. Of course, if you can get another person to go around telling of your wonderful predictions, especially if that person happens to be a well-established commentator, writer, or journalist, you have made it. The only thing I find distasteful about many people in the prediction business is their sanctimonious attitude, leaning on the respectability of religion and using it to give themselves a holier-than-thou image. If these types would only free themselves from the guilts inspired by their biblical warnings against the practice of soothsaying, they wouldn't have to overcompensate in such a simpering manner in order to atone for their sins of making predictions. This applies to all fortune tellers, mediums, psychics, pseudo-mystics and magicians, etc., who have to hang on the walls of their consolation rooms with plaster saints, mouth platitudes about the greater gift that God has given them, and in general, cloak their black art with sanctimonious white light. These people are playing the devil's game, but refuse to use the devil's name, and their hypocrisy is bound to annoy the old prince of darkness. And that's chapter seven. Chapter eight, ceremonial magic. We'll get to in just a second. I, I got to bring this up though, because prophecy as a subject is, is very huge in my upbringing. See, I was raised in an LDS household, which is entirely based, like ongoing prophets, people who divine what is to come for the church as they refer to it, the church, um, the Mormon church. It is all bullshit, and it always is wrong, and it always comes around. So at one time, they didn't want uh, black men and women in the priesthood because they were lesser. They were the Lamanites, the bad guys, right? They were cursed to have darker skin by God. And then it became a socially awkward thing to say that we can't have blacks in the priesthood. So they said, hey, we can have blacks in the priesthood. And now they're saying we can't have gays in the priesthood because they're sinning against God. How long do you think? How long do you think it's going to take? I'd say it's pretty soon. It's coming. It's in the mail. Um, but that being said, I was raised uh, with the looming force of Nostradamus as a prophet who made thousands of predictions and you can interpret any of them in any manner of ways throughout the hundreds of years that he has been dead to mean whatever the fuck you want it to mean. And so I always sneer when uh, someone comes up and tells me, Oh, did you hear the pandemic was prophesized? This person said years ago that there would come a, a sickness that would infect hundreds of people and they would vanish as if it was never there in the first place. That's how most viruses act, you fucking idiot. And yes, inevitably, there will be some form of a sickness that will inflict many people. They're called viruses and diseases, and they've been around since the dawn of time. So because someone said that that was going to happen at one time or another, does not make them Nostradamus or fucking a seer. It just makes them not forgetful of past orthodoxies. They understand history, and they understand history repeats itself. Nature 
repeats itself. If you are aware of the world around you, you can then divine the future. That's all he's saying. And that's all that people have done. And you would be amazed if you're not one of them yourself about how many people buy into the prophecy bullshit. It's stunning. Stunning. Oh, sorry, Wes. <laughs> I'm extrapolating too much. I should just read. I should just get to the reading. <sighs> just for that. I'm going to take a little bit more time. Dick. <laughs> Chapter 8. Ceremonial Magic. Sex Magic Without Sanctimony. We've covered the spectrum of what the well-dressed witch should wear, but what about the well-undressed enchantress? Here we must return to the elemental principle of the Law of the Forbidden. Sheer nudity in itself is usually not nearly as stimulating as a glimpse of the forbidden. Going about topless won't accomplish a thing unless you radiate the feeling of embarrassment it could bring. Place a nude model on a platform in an art class who does this sort of thing every day, and only the most inexperienced males will find any erotic stimulation present. The types that go to museums and masturbate in front of a Titian or Renoir when nobody's looking are getting scarce. It takes a great deal more than nudity nowadays to compel sensual stimulation. Topless clubs get boring because the dancers are blasé about their exposure. They cannot radiate the powerful magic that comes with embarrassment, even though the first five times they might have, which might have been why they got the job in the first place. The greater success of amateur, strip, and topless performers attests to the fact that men want to see a secretary, school teacher, or another guy's wife any day. Even though most amateur, topless contests are fixed with obviously experienced girls working the show, the audience wants to believe the contestants are all terribly naughty, apprehensive, and embarrassed ladies. The girl who says, I could never do that, is the one who could cause the greatest sensation if she were to do a striptease or appear at a cocktail party in a topless dress. Her red face would ensure her success rather than the size or shape of her breasts. One of the most magically depleting things that can happen, yet one that most witches would surely believe to be in their favor, is for the girl who doesn't think she could ever take her clothes off or go topless in front of others to discover that after the initial shock wore off after a few minutes, it didn't seem so bad. The real secret, of course, is to maintain your self-consciousness, realizing it to be a positive factor. When you adjust to a situation that would be sexually provocative to others and becomes blasé, you've literally cut off your magnetic pull. The most highly successful and truly charismatic glamour goddesses never become blasé or lack self-consciousness of their sexuality. Most women know the old trick of unbuttoning one of the middle buttons of a blouse so that it will appear as though it accidentally became unfastened. This is always good for a sneaky peek at what lies beneath if you move about. In utilizing the Law of the Forbidden, you can make many of the things you do appear as though you were unaware of them happening. Thus, you will be employing a double threat by your proper and conductive choice of garments and also by your apparent lack of knowledge of your exposure. So many opportunities present themselves and an entire volume could be written on the subject, and the most effective turn-ons will never look staged. 
These are exercises you should practice that will allow you to develop a hyper-awareness of your own sexuality while maintaining safe, uh, while remaining safe from any stigma of social rejection. Rather than call these exercises an embarrassment, I prefer to label them exactly what they are intended to be, magical rituals. It has been stated that all women are exhibitionists to a certain extent. The thrill that any healthy woman obtains when she knows she is exciting a desirable male is the most natural thing in the world. So far, I have attempted to clarify many of the misconceptions about what men are actually turned on and off by. My findings are the results of many hours of listening to the experiences of women whose business it is to please men and have them come back for more. Besides prostitutes, there are ten times as many average women who have told me tales in great confidence that they invariably think will place each of them or the men they describe in a singularly freakish light. When you hear enough of a singular experiences, it becomes apparent that they are not so singular after all and are only thought to be by the individual. The only thing you must realize when performing little rituals in sexual self-consciousness is the positive value of such an experience. That there can be a secret thrill to connected, uh, a secret thrill connected with each exercise, there is little doubt. What is important, however, is that you make a ritual of the experience. In order to be a powerful witch, you must learn the meaning of ritual in its most magical sense. A ritual is an act or series of acts that are entered into with complete and total awareness of one's actions, plans, feelings, and purpose. All rituals do not take place in a specially designed chamber, as you shall see. If you want to be a witch, you'd best learn the first three dimensions before you concern yourself with the fourth. The only way to start is to become aware of your own existence, super aware. Then, in what will appear to be the most subtle and non-esoteric ways, make others who will increase your witch power aware of your existence. Because their sexual energy is potential magical energy, and nature intended that they be attracted to you, men your best source of witch power, therefore, by your own sexual self-consciousness, you can draw this power from the men whom, who need only to be placed within your magnetic field. Remember, the purpose of a ritual such as the one I'm about to describe is not to pick up men, but to produce within yourself an accelerated charge of sexual self-consciousness. While performing your ritual, remain as aware as possible that you are doing something naughty, forbidden, possibly even nasty. This is not the time to try to scrape your psyche clean with thoughts of breaking inhibitions and false guilts. This is the time to turn unfounded guilts and inhibitions into an advantage. Allow yourself to feel as self-conscious as you can. You may find that some rituals are more subjective than others and consist of situations which you alone are aware. Naturally, these will supply a great deal of sexual stimulation for yourself, but not for others. The main advantage of such rituals is to generate sexual self-awareness in a highly intensified manner in Infinitely. Infinitely. More than simply standing nude before the mirror and chanting as practiced by some witches. Here is one magical working any girl can perform with no equipment other than her own body, a mirror, and her normal clothes. Undoubtedly, there are some of you who have already tried this as it falls into the same category as undressing in front of a window with the shade pulled up, but is decidedly safer and much more stimulating. 
Apply your makeup so you feel as though you look as seductive as possible. Fix your hair in an attractive manner. Take off all your clothes and step into the sexiest pair of high heels you own. Now you are glamorously decked out at your highest and lowest extremities, head to toe. If you wish to add extra Philip, put on some of your favorite accessories, hat, gloves, jewelry. Now you're all set. Get a good look at yourself in a full-length mirror, visualizing what you see as exactly how men will soon be looking at you. Go to your closet and get your coat, only your coat, and put it on and button it. Now go out. Go where there will be people, especially men. If you're driving, stop in a gas station to use the restroom so the attendants can see you. Go into a newsstand for a pack of cigarettes where men are playing the pinball machines. Walk around. Go up to a street repairman or construction workers and ask directions. At all times, consider yourself to be stark naked. Imagine that every man you encounter who looks at you is studying each contour of your luscious, ripe body, savoring the sight of your nipples and scrutinizing the shadow between your legs. Remember, you need not speak to anyone unless you want to. If you feel daring, go into a bar and have a drink. If it is feasible, when in a place that you're sure is temporarily deserted, as when you are alone in an elevator, museum, or art gallery, hotel or motel corridor, etc., open your coat all the way up and stand in the nude, momentarily caressing yourself if you wish. Walk around until you have almost exhausted the time you have set aside for your ritual, then go home. As soon as you get in your room, remove your coat and stand before the mirror. Imagine that you see yourself as a desirable man who would see you. Perhaps you are, uh, perhaps you encountered during your walk. Look at yourself from an imaginary man's body, allowing yourself to feel as sexually excited as you might, were you a man. As you gaze at yourself in the mirror, picture yourself as being in one of the places you were prior to returning home. Imagine that you are one of the men that were looking at you, and how he must have felt being able to see you as you look now, for you must assume that he could see you nude. Didn't you look absolutely shocking? Your lovely body completely exposed as you shamefully flaunted yourself. Feel as though you have a male sexual response as, you're, as you study your reflection. You are not yourself as you stand before the mirror. Your reflection is really you. The body you feel around you is that of a handsome man, terribly aroused and excited at the outrageous display of the sensual naked body of the girl who is exposing herself. Allow yourself to build to as high a peak of sexual excitement as possible, masturbating yourself to a climax, attempting to feel as the man would as he watched the girl, you, perform such an act in public. As you are overcome by your sensual responses, close your eyes, fall to the floor, thrash about in wild abandon, or do whatever will contribute to the most intense orgasm. Now is a very important time from a magical standpoint. As you are coming down from your climax, say to yourself, I am a witch. I have power over men. I am a witch. I have power over men. 
Repeat this over and over as your climactic recedes. Saying, uh, keep saying it to yourself, moving your lips and speaking as loudly or softly or inaudibly as conditions will permit. Then, either slip into your clothes and pursue your normal activities as though nothing has happened, or, if it is late, slide into bed and go to sleep. The first time you perform this ritual, you might want to go easy and just walk around the block or go to the laundromat, possibly spending only a few minutes in public. You'll find at least an hour is best, though. After the first ritual, you should notice an immediate increase in your powers of attraction, and you will know that you are accumulating some real witch power. This ritual is truly discreet and is virtually foolproof insofar as your personal safety is concerned, providing you don't go wandering in disreputable areas or senselessly throw open your coat in an indiscriminate fashion. The actual mechanics of the ritual just described serve to bring about many vitally important ingredients towards your success as a witch. The emphasis on the power of the strong contrasts uh, of the strong contrast is supplied by the fact that you are dressed up in all the readily visible areas of your body while totally naked under your coat. The same element is present in the incongruity of mingling with people who are clothed while you are naked in an unstaged environment. If this does not present a feeling of self-consciousness, you'll never make it as a witch, for you lack the emotional response of the individual on whom you will be working your magic. If you are so alien to others' emotional responses, I would recommend you give up on trying to be a witch or else take a few lessons from a Martian or a Venusian who has learned to pass. The law of the forbidden is subjective, uh, subjectively practiced in your constant awareness of your outrageous behavior. Any embarrassment you develop while walking around will cause you to be noticed by men who normally might not pay any attention to you simply because you're radiating that feeling, not because anyone actually knows you are naked. Momentarily exposing yourself completely, as in an elevator, etc., will give you an added thrill in knowing you're getting away with something, thereby adding to your accumulation of secret accomplishments and subsequent power. Even though your objective mind might not consider such an act an accomplishment, in your highly charged state, it will subconsciously go on record as such. When you return home from your walk, you begin an exercise in ego circuitry, allowing both your apparent and demonic elements to manifest themselves. The mirror has long been utilized for magical purposes, though few practitioners actually realize the fantastic potential and myriad uses of reflective planes. During the Detunement science period. Detunement science period as your self-proclamation will retain its substance as your mind and body are unwinding and opening and are like a yawning chasm just waiting for suggestions. This is the time a woman wants to be told she is loved more than any other because the reinforcement of her psyche that such an admission brings is worth a thousand hugs and kisses at any other time. When you tell yourself exactly what you are, at this point, and that you have power over men, you are accomplishing far more than a simple exercise in positive thinking. When you resume your normal activities after getting dressed, you have symbolically closed your ritual chamber behind you, thereby isolating your previous act and making it a ritual in the truest sense of the word. The combination of all the elements we have discussed cannot help but have an accumulative side effect in the awareness you have over your own powers of seduction and the aura which will surround you. 
Sorry for fucking up some of those words, people. Oh, sexy. Okay. <laughs> uh, in the chat. Any of you ladies do this? Curious. You don't have to answer, but if you want to, <laughs> I would be curious to know. Um, there have been situations where, you know, if you, uh, for example, if you're in a dorm environment and you have to get from the shower to your room and maybe you didn't prepare very well and you just have a towel and you're rushing down the hall and someone bumps into you and they know exactly what's under that towel, you know exactly what's under that towel, you can feel the embarrassment and they are aroused by that feeling. It's real. When I'm wearing my kilt and I literally just have a fabric of uh, wool between me, my boys, and <laughs> whoever is next to me. If you're, I'm sorry, I have a hair on my eye there. Um, if you sit a certain way, things show. It can be embarrassing, but that attracts people. I mean, why do you think women love men in kilts so much? Especially women who would normally never want to see a dude's junk if it was flashed at them. But if they could peek it from under a kilt. <laughs> it's a lot of forbidden, people. And it is powerful. And if you wield it, oh, how powerful you will be. Yeah, good stuff, man. Uh, lots of opportunities for a lot of been at truck stops, too. Hmm. Damn right. Damn right. Uh, okay, if you haven't tried it, you have nothing to lose. Give it a go. Who knows? Maybe the doctor knows a little something about this stuff. <laughs> Let's move on. Actually, hold on a second. Oh, please don't be reading the book of Revelations. <laughs> Reverend Campbell, Satanic Ranger. <laughs> yeah. All right. <clears throat> Sorry for stumbling around with some of these words so much. It just, when I, I try to get into a pattern, like anyone who reads aloud, you're going to stumble from time to time. Just accept it. So I hope you guys are okay with it. Casting a spell. Before you consider spell casting, you must be totally aware of yourself as a veritable dynamo of desire. You cannot be half-hearted when you attempt to throw a spell or curse. You must know what you want and be fully prepared to take advantage of it when it comes to you. Magic depends on an emotional response rather than an intellectual approach. When you are spell casting, you must be prepared to throw all emotional repressions and inhibitions to the wind. This is why the casting of a spell is best performed in the sanctity of your own home or a place where you can be alone. Group rituals are seldom as effective for the actual throwing of a curse or charm unless each one of the participants is fully in sympathy for whatever the ceremony is to attain. Otherwise, group ceremonies are best employed as statements of faith, dedication, and homage to the dark forces, much as a church service would be, but to different gods. If you don't, uh, you don't have to be satanic to enjoy a nude altar but apparently it helps if you're a man. There is no doubt, though, that the solemnity and gothic awesomeness of a good satanic mass would warm the heart of Barnabas Collins. 
For your own personal ceremonies, you'll need privacy, a good imagination, some creative ability, and a proper time slot. Time-wise, it's always best to attack your victim when he sleeps, vampire style. The reason so many traditional witches and sorcerers are nocturnal is because it's the best time to do such dirty work. When a person is asleep, his defenses are down, his subconscious up, and his brain is receptive to whatever strong impulses you can throw his way. The ideal state for the witch who is sending is one of highly charged emotion, while the best condition for the recipient to be in is as passive and dormant as possible. Take a nap if need be, and wake up in the wee small hours to perform your spell. There are many ways to curse an enemy, using the powers of ceremonial magic, but the main difference in any of them is in the device employed to approximate or imitate the victim. Pictures, photos, wax or clay models, among other things, can be created of your intended victim, but the device that I would recommend best is a handmade doll similar in construction to those used in the practice of voodoo magic. The voodoo doll has become synonymous with cursing, and if for no other reason than this ready-made association, should such an effigy be used. The importance of making your own voodoo doll cannot be minimized, as the creative energy you expand in fashioning the doll will definitely add to the effectiveness of your ritual. Adherence to the prescribed method of making the doll requires that you use plain material for the outside and stuff the inside with feathers or cotton. Despite what you might hear to the contrary, the best color is the basic color of the victim's skin. You may make a very effective doll from a pair of new socks, which are readily obtainable. Important. Whatever you do, don't use material that you have worn from which to fashion the doll, nor salvage material from clothing worn by anyone for whom you care. Use the socks slitting the ankle part in half of the heel for the body of the doll. Fill the sock with feathers until you reach the back of the heel where the slit you made, uh, you've just made ends. Now sew up the slit of the two halves to form legs. Fill each leg with feathers and sew up the ends, forming feet. Next, take a piece of string and tie it tightly around the toe of the sock about two inches from the end, forming the neck, which separates the head from the torso. If you have done all this correctly, the toe of the sock should form the head, the foot part will become the body, and the ankle or leg sections of the sock will be transformed into the two legs. The second sock may now be cut up for use in making the two arms of the doll, which, after being stuffed with feathers, are sewn to the body. The doll should be sewn by hand for best results, as a sewing machine for such a small item will most certainly eliminate the personal touch you supply by hand stitching. Each stitch should be drawn with tender, loving hate, thinking of your enemy with each thrust of the needle. Next, you must supply the head of the doll with the face of your enemy, or at least a reasonable facsimile. If you are talented at drawing, you can sketch a likeness, cut it out, and paste or glue it to the doll's head. If you are fortunate enough to have a photograph of your enemy, so much the better, especially if, when trimmed down, the photo will fit in the place where the face should be. Now the doll must be dressed. If you can obtain an article or a portion of your enemy's clothing, utilize it, as it will add to the imagery. It helps to dress the doll in a way that resembles the style of the person to be cursed, as regards to color, material, etc. If the victim has a particular habit, such as carrying a cane, umbrella, or briefcase, or uses a certain type of tool regularly, it should be incorporated into the doll by placing a miniature of the implement in the hand. By the time you've finished, the doll should be a vivid representation, carefully constructed, of your enemy. Put the finishing doll 
uh, finished doll aside for 24 hours, if possible, in a place where you cannot fail to see it. This will allow the anticipation for what you are about to do to become intensified by the anger engendered by being confronted with your enemy. After 24 hours have elapsed, enough of a presence has been developed in the doll. Have your pins or nails ready to stick into the doll. The use of nails rather than pins is recommended, but other implements such as knives, daggers, ice picks, etc. may be used. It is likewise to ascertain the victim's weak spots health-wise. The reason for that is the curse will work much better and faster if the victim has been known to have stomach trouble and the nails are thrust in the vicinity of the doll's stomach. If the person to be cursed is known to have migraine headaches, concentrate the nails in the doll's head. If there is a history of arthritis or aching joints, poke your nails where the knees, elbows, spine, shoulders, wrists, and hips would be. When you push the nails into the doll, do it with great deliberation, feeling as though each twist and jab is actually penetrating your victim's body. Use as many nails as you wish until you've gotten all the hatred out of your system. Once this is done, put the doll away in a place where it will be out of sight and hopefully out of mind. It is best to perform this ritual in complete privacy as it is serious business. If done properly, it is not necessary that your victim have any knowledge of your curse. If no results are obtained, it is not because magic doesn't work. One reason might lie in the fact that your victim is not really deserving of such treatment and you are the wrongdoer. It is best to fully and honestly evaluate a situation before indiscriminately throwing a curse. The best protection against any curse is the admiration and love bestowed upon you by others. Another reason a curse will sometimes fail is anxiety. If you sit around waiting on pins and needles for your victim to fall and break a leg after performing your ritual, it is unlikely anything will happen. So, once your ritual has been performed, be satisfied that you have performed a powerful and well-planned working and have confidence that it will work. Then, just sit back and wait for the results without continually thinking about when and how it will happen. A third and very important reason for failure is guilt. The person doing the cursing must feel no guilty conscience at having performed the ceremony or the ensuing apprehension at what she uh, has done will surely consume her while her intended victim gets away scot-free. This is why white witches, stupidity, say that if you curse a person it will return threefold. If you are so sanctimonious that you have to impress others that you are a witch, good witch, it's a cinch that you will feel such guilt after throwing a curse that it would bounce back and harm you. One thing stands sure though, even if your intended victim is protected from your curse and not harmed, you will have released a lot of anxiety and hostility from your system and will be able to carry on your everyday activities with much greater ease. If everybody were sticking pins and dolls instead of irritating others, driving recklessly, starting fights and insulting their friends, things might actually be running a lot smoother. Hate can be a good thing if properly directed and honestly admitted. When hate is bottled up, however, and attempts are made to twist it into love, it is still hate just with sugar coating added. Then, instead of being able to come out in one fell swoop, the hate just sits there, oozing out in disgusted, syrupy, sweet viciousness or irrational acts. Uh, I am a big fan of ritual. Not all Satanists are. I, I dig it. I understand it. 
I have created facsimiles of humans and destroyed them. And I don't concern myself about the outcome <laughs> because what put me there is my inability to get past what I was feeling. This psychodrama exercise works for many people, works for me. Uh, what about you? Have you guys ever created a, um, a voodoo doll, as it were? Have you ever destroyed someone with a curse? Have you ever cast it? Have you ever noticed that it didn't work out the way you wanted to? And does that bother you? I do love the idea of the, um, the, the one reason a curse would fail is because the person just didn't deserve it and you're the one at fault. <laughs> I've been in that situation where someone has cursed me. And then there's, of course, the balance factor. I mean, we, we've gone over this in the Satanic Bible. And so, um, at least in part, in the Satanic Bible. So I'm not going to go over it again. But um, the balance factor is pretty damn important. Uh, so I don't know. What do you guys think? You, you into ritual at all as, as witches? Is it something that interests you or, or you're down with? One thing I did find interesting is that he noted that um, group rituals for specific destruction purposes can actually be less successful unless everyone is connected emotionally with what's about to happen. I find that a very interesting notion because you would think that the accumulated adrenal energies that are being directed towards one end would all be forced into one end. But that's not really how human nature works, right? I can empathize with someone hating someone else. And if they want me to conduct a ritual or be a, 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 a member of a ritual, then I'll join them. But if I don't actually identify with the hatred, how can I fully direct it? And so the opposite of that is going to be me directing my energy into a compassion uh, response for the efficient rather than a destruction of the efficient's target. So, again, this is intellectualizing ritual and, you know, you really shouldn't think about it too much because it's more of an emotional exercise than a, a technical one. I do think it's a very interesting idea, a, an interesting thought experiment. Let me know what you guys think. You've never had to do a curse ritual before. Always found sex more useful. <laughs> well, yeah, there you go. Uh, voodoo dolls can be effective in representing that person. Uh, you've done quite a few successful greater magic rituals over the years. Nice. Well, good on you. you spent some time creating your own compassion recently. I feel it helped you understand greater magic even more. Well, here's one thing that I think is very, very important. It's like anything. It's like sex. You can read about it all you want until you do it. You don't really know. It goes through with greater magic as well. Until you've actually conducted a greater magic ritual, you don't really know if it works for you or not. So give it a go. I mean, this entire volume is about lesser magic. And there's just this final chapter dealing with any form of ceremonial greater magic. But it's there for a reason. And it, it can work. And it's very powerful. So consider it. Yeah? Where would you put it that you wouldn't see it? Ah, you just find a drawer. Get a shoebox. You know? 
Put it in a crawl space. Telltale heart. <gasps> My voodoo doll is trying. It turns into Chucky, dude. <laughs> it comes out after you. Uh, whatever you do. <laughs> just find a place that you can just shove it. Shove it up the cursed person's ass. <laughs> this is, no, don't do that. I'm just, I'm kidding. Let's move on before I say something else. I shouldn't. How to protect yourself from another witch's curse. There's no need to fear another's curse unless you are a deserving victim. Naturally, no one would consider themselves a deserving victim any more than the so-called white witch thinks she practices magic for other than good purposes. This is why it is often wisest to assume that even if we are minding our own business and not bothering anybody, somebody is going to hate us sooner or later. There are people who will take offense no matter what you do to please them, and if they know how to throw a curse, they will. These are the truly wretched individuals who usually are so miserable that they are the victims of far worse curse than any they could throw your way. Assuming you are an undeserving victim, such as an unscrupulous individual, you fear uh, your fear of that person or his curse is often enough to make life miserable for you. This is especially true of extremely sensible would-be victims of curses. If your fears of being cursed by such a person are bad enough to affect your everyday life, then, in effect, you are being cursed. In order to protect yourself from a curse or the fear of a curse, you must meet it head-on, confronting it with more than a simple defense. In this case, the best means of defense is offense, and the only way to prove yourself uh, to prove to yourself that you're stronger than the curse is to literally consume your fear of it rather than being consumed by it. An old and secret means of doing this is to fashion a likeness of the person who has cursed you from some edible substance, if you know who that person is. You can use a fruit or vegetable carved in the form of the person or bake a cookie after having molded the dough so it represents the cursor or witch. The origin of the gingerbread man, as described in an earlier chapter, is simply the casting of a likeness of the man the witch wishes to enslave after eating it, gaining control over him. Make your likeness of the person who has cursed you as realistic as possible, considering the material you have to work with. After you have completed the likeness, place it in a darkened room on a table, where only one white candle illuminating it from behind. Then sit or stand directly in front of where you have placed your carving or cake, feeling as much intense fear as possible. Allow your thoughts to dwell on whatever it is that your attacker has used to torment you. Tremble and shake in fear. Get it all out of your system in one fell swoop. Then say in words to this effect, All right, you rotten bitch. You've gotten your little curse. Now it's my turn to show you my power over you. Advance slowly toward the likeness as a tiger stalking its prey. Pick up the representation deliberately and methodically, studying it with great disdain and contempt. Prod it with your fingers as you hold it, almost feeling it squirm in your hand. Pinch it, tweak it, torment it, imagining it as your victim. Now, helpless and mute, lick your chops ghoulishly. Talk to it insultingly, call it by name. Torment and torture it, knowing it has been recently doing the same to you. Then, slowly and with fiendish delight, bite the head off, chew it thoroughly, smack your lips, and swallow it.
Then proceed to gnaw off the arms, legs, and finish up with the body. When you have finished, lick the crumbs from your lips, wipe your mouth, blow out the candle, and walk out of the room. An interesting variant of this procedure is to spit out the pieces you bite off, having chewed each piece thoroughly. Gather the pieces you have spit out and throw them down the toilet. Of course, if you eat the likeness, it'll wind up there anyway, but your system might benefit from some part of it. Choose whichever means is most emotionally appealing to you. Fucking awesome, man. <laughs> I, I love that so much. I can't read without my damn glasses. <laughs> then slowly, with fiendish delight, bite the head off. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's fair, right? So, why be terrified about someone else when you can just fucking crush them under your heel? A little bit of self-confidence, a little bit of dramatic role-play, and uh, maybe that's all you need, you know? Badass, man. I love that so much. Uh, okay. <laughs> what do you guys think? Can you uh, reverse a curse by eating it? Eating the person? Is that where cannibalism came from? Actually, you know, to be fair, I don't want to get into this. I don't know enough about it. But there was, um, in Robinson Crusoe, there was tale of Trinidadians going to war with other Trinidadian tribes and if they would defeat them or in the battle if they could steal someone away kidnap them abduct them then they would then take them to another island and create a ritual scenario of eating them murdering them alive and then eating consuming them and it was a literal interpretation of why am I afraid of my enemy? I'm going to consume him and absorb his power, right? This is the same thing. <laughs> Maybe not as visceral. How to become a succubus and attack the man of your choice while he sleeps. A succubus is an evil female demon who visits men in the night and while they are sleeping has sexual intercourse with them. A man knows he has been attacked by a succubus when he wakes up in the morning and his nightshirt is stiff with dried semen. He's likely to go about all day following... Um, he's likely to go about all the following day with lewd thoughts on his mind, generally of a woman, the appearance of whom was the image taken by the succubus who attacked him. If he is a good man and holy, he will not let this thing pass unattended. He will seek out his priest, telling him of his nightmarish experience and produce his rigid nightgown as proof. <laughs> he will describe the dream which accompanied his monstrous visitation, recalling to the best of his ability the details of his encounter. The priest, a wise man, will understand, as he knows such evil does exist and has heard many such accounts and inspected many semen-encrusted nightshirts. The fact that many of the succubi described to him match the faces and bodies of some of the women of the town concerns him no small amount as well as should. Something must be done. A great deal was done for several centuries. Now at last it is safe to become a succubus and enter the dreams of the man you desire. All you need is an indelible image of his physical attributes in your mind, a burning lust, 
a place to work it out, and some help from other men. Choose a time when he has been asleep for at least four hours. Exercise your sensuality by going forth earlier in a manner to excite other men, even if only visually, employing the law of the forbidden and the virtues of embarrassment. Do not depend upon your strong desire for the man you wish to summon, as it alone is not enough. It is important that you engender the lust energy from other men, as they will be supplying, through their sexual fantasies of you this night, the proper balance, the completed circuit of needed magical energy. Enter your chamber at the prescribed hour and start to masturbate. If you can force his image into your mind at the exact moment of climax, it is highly likely he will receive your visitation. If a man who is masturbating with your image in his mind or who is having intercourse with you should reach climax, and at the time you envision the object of your desire and your, you yourself reach a climax while thinking of your quarry, you will be sure to reach him as he sleeps. If you wish, add some incantations or burn some incense or candles to make your charm more magical. Women are romantic, and witches are, after all, women, so such devices will always be popular. In the way of accoutrement, whatever makes you feel like a witch who is casting a powerful spell will make your magic stronger. If the man you have visited does not come to you, it's only because he needs to be summoned, not because you are not in his mind. As a succubus, the purpose of your working is to enter his mind and body as he sleeps, although such things often prohibit sleep and cause him to lie awake with a knot in his solar plexus. Once you have visited him in this manner and cause his mind to dwell upon you, you must summon him. The reason lust spells seldom work for would-be witches is because the victim has not been softened up properly prior to ritual, which is actually a summons. For the actual summoning, many rituals can be employed. Here is one example. A few days after you visit as a succubus, or even the next day if you're anxious, perform the ritual as described in the chapter on sex magic. Instead of envisioning the excitement of the men you have encountered during your outing as you stand before the mirror, imagine yourself as the man you wish to summon and talk to him from the mirror. As he stands in your body, he hears you command him to come to you. Make it as convincing as you can using the same procedure and reaching your climax as you would if you were practicing this ritual as a strengthening rather than a summoning. Perform the succubus and summoning ritual as often as you feel the desire. If you persevere, your dream lover will become a physical reality. Unless you learn well the lesser magic contained herein, however, you have no right to complain if your summoning is short-lived. Always remember, there is far more magic to witchery than that which takes place during a ceremony. I love that last line. I'm going to say it again because this goes, in my opinion, um, hand in hand with every act of greater satanic magic. Always remember, there is far more magic to witchery than that which takes place during a ceremony. That means don't let the ritual chamber be the end all of your acting. You need to use lesser magic as well. They, it's called satanic magic. It's branched into two categories, lesser and greater, but they must work together in harmony. And they do, if you just try. It's pretty goddamn great. But that, that's, I, I can't stand the idea of a Satanist uh, performing a ritual 
and then just waiting, sitting on their uh, laurels, resting, hoping that their desires will occur. No, get out there. You're a fucking Satanist. Your will will be done, but you have to enact your will. Don't just think that your adrenal energies are going to do everything for you. There's another part of this that I want to um, touch on because depending on where you land on your acceptance or understanding of satanic magic, greater magic ritual, this could seem pretty flawed <laughs> and pretty, pretty bullshit prone. Not just this one little passage of standing in front of the mirror or um, and summoning uh, your target and they will hear you, but also the idea of being a succubus and having them experience it. I'm going to go on record <laughs> and say that that's not how I see things. Uh, I am not as experienced as the doctor in this, so I'm just coming from my experience. Uh, my understanding of greater satanic magic lies more in the individual self-awareness and development side of things, the psychodrama side of things, than the actual um, direction and changing of events. I use lesser magic for that. So though I've had success in greater magic ritual, um, I don't I've never relied on it. I've never even considered relying on it because I'm so much more effective one-on-one -on -one to do what I need done, you know? Or or even, if not one-on-one, -on -one, having my reputation precede me to those that I want to uh, interact. So, you know, I, I mean, what about, what do you guys think? I mean, are you hook, line, and sinker on the idea that you can become a succubus and make a man stain his sleepwear <laughs> or or is this um more for the witch's sake what do you think i would be interested to hear your responses because i think they're going to be dramatically different uh potentially than mine no matter where you land on the scale of understanding with magic but that's why satanic magic is such a difficult conversation to have right because it's, it, it lies heavily with your own understanding of it, um, with your own comfort, with the idea of it, and how you've understood magic or understand or maybe strictly adhere solely to science, you know, explained magic. Um, I think it's very interesting. So Draco says, greater magic is the fuel of a car. Lesser magic is the car that moves you closer to your own goals. Interesting. That's interesting. That's definitely one way of looking at it. And I like it. But it's one way. I mean, some people do genuinely believe that they're, you know, doing things other than that. What's up, Zachary? Better late than never, man. All right. We're an hour and a half in. Holy shit. I only have a half an hour. I've been talking too much. What is this? Nine cents? On choosing a familiar or a demon. Every witch should have a familiar or a demon. If you have a pet of any kind that is totally dependent upon you, it is more protect, uh, It is more protection from the destructive thoughts of others than you can imagine. Love is dependence, and a creature who depends on you might just be the one ingredient you lack to safeguard yourself. 
You need not fear your familiar or demon will tell any tales about your activities, nor will it complicate your life by burdening you with its problems other than to expect food and care. In choosing a pet, care should be taken to ascertain whether it will occupy the role of your demonic or core personality. If it is representative of your demonic self, it will be exactly the opposite of yourself. Some such combinations are easily defined, like a slender girl with a sleek hair and delicate features with a bulldog or turtle. A rotund man with the greyhounds, or the excessively large woman with the chihuahua. Examples of the core personality manifested in a familiar are observed in the talkative little woman with the house full of canaries, the outdoors type with the Irish setter, and the exotic type with the ocelot. In choosing a familiar, make sure it will act as an extension of your apparent or core personality. In this choice, you will be able to intensify the strength of your existing personality by the addition of another's, another creature's magical energy, which is already close to you. If you are satisfied with what you are, who you are, and what you can do, then choose this type of familiar. If, however, you want to modify your personality, temper it, or otherwise mutate it, the choice of a demonic pet, which is as close in appearance as you will ever envision an actual demon, is your best bet. When people look like their pets, their relationship is definitely that of which familiar. The magical end result of such a relationship is a lycanthropic state, where the person becomes the animal and the animal becomes the person. In the theoretical manifestation of this phenomenon, the inactive, often sleeping person's psyche roams abroad inside the animal and acts are performed by the animal with or without direction by the human. When people are extreme opposites of their pets, the pet must not be handled, fondled, or cuddled by anyone other than its owner, unlike the owner of the familiar who thrives on people making a fuss over her pet, for they're indirectly making a fuss over her. The demon's owner makes people keep their distance. Let's review the types we just observed in this light. The sylph-like girl will be very guarded, lest anyone attempting to handle her prized bulldog, even though she may be sorting his... Uh, he may be snorting his head off with enthusiasm. The corpulent man with his greyhounds will warn those who come too close that they may snap at the buxom dogwagger. Um, dowager will have a fit if anyone pokes his finger too close to her little darling's nose. On the other hand, the chatty bird lady will fairly trap you into saying, uh, staying in her living room until you have the opportunity to personally commune with each of her canaries and hear the subtleties in each's voice. The man with the setter will hold court for hours on his dog's merits, and all the while eating it up as you stroke its ears. And the gal in the gold lame pantsuit will find uh, will wind up with a lawsuit for sure the way she lets everyone pet her ocelot. Whatever your choice will be, familiar or demon, the love and devotion engendered by it will carry you through many a magical predicament. And don't think that the cat is the only animal that can supply such power. I've had cats all my life, both big and little, and I love them dearly, but I've also had dogs, snakes, iguanas, crocodiles, rabbits, a capybara, and a tarantula named Bruno, who died of old age, and they gave me more than I can ever repay. Hell yeah, I love me some familiars. Alright, I'm going to try to burn through this last section, it's not very long, it's... I uh, got two, it's, it's basically two different sections of this last chapter. And I think I can do it in a half an hour. I want to talk about familiars really quick though, because I love, I love animals. I've had 
dogs my entire life. We have chickens. I've had a turtle. Um, we've never had cats. But I'm not, I'm not, I don't particularly like cats because I'm allergic to them, but I'm not averse to them. Like if I go to someone's house who has a cat, they love me. So I, I don't have a problem with it. Um, but there is, there is a connection. We're animals after all. And animals can tell if you're a piece of shit or not. I've, I've had too many animals cue me in to behaviors that I later found out about people. They know. <laughs> Sometimes they're not always right. And they just are worried because of their own life experience. Maybe they were abused by someone that looks like you or has similar features than you. But they can in tune you know they, they they know what's going on much better than i think most humans and uh you would be wise to pay attention and use them use the animals use them for affection um for something to dote on take care of them you need to treat them like the benevolent animals that they are because they're going to return massive amounts of emotion and concern and care when you need it most. They're always there. And it's a great feeling. Having animals is, is fucking fantastic. I don't know about tarantulas though. <laughs> Sorry, Bruno. Chapter nine, public relations for witches. As a practicing witch, you must decide whether to make it known or work your wonders while people think of you as a woman, but not a witch. There are advantages and disadvantages to each approach. The disadvantages are thus. If you call yourself a witch, then your moves will be suspect and your motivations will be analyzed. You'll let yourself in for a lot more side activity, such as telling fortunes, making predictions, giving advice to friends, and being invited to parties to sing for your supper. You'll be asked by local reporters and columnists for interviews once it is discovered that a real witch is in town. If you choose to keep your witch power secret, you will lose some of the ego gratification that is gained in making your occult pursuits known to others. You'll, uh, you will have to swallow your assertiveness when you are forced to listen to others and perhaps much less magically endowed girls boast of their witchiness. You will often be condemned as simply a bitch rather than a witch for your actions. Were you to be known as a witch, any violation of taboos could be more readily expected and therefore accepted. If one is to consider the advantages of each approach to witchery, the self-proclaimed witch has the opportunity to bask in the light of an immensely popular tonic topic. She will be the center of attention wherever she goes, and her ego will be fed. She will find many men approaching her as some sort of sexual promiscuous bod who is possessed of the devil. So if sex is what she is after, she'll have every opportunity thrust at her. If she likes to talk, this is her best approach, for she will be expected to give a lecture on the black arts wherever she goes. Unless you are a good talker, this may not be your best bet. If you are the quiet type, it is still possible to advertise the fact that you are a witch, but your actions will have to speak louder than your words. The most bungling and incompetent witches are those with the biggest speaking tubes, and like it or not, you'll often have to temporarily play second fiddle to them. Don't worry about them presenting any threat to your schemes or plans, though, as they usually burn themselves out after their knowledge of occultism is exhausted, leaving them with little or no knowledge of the very real world around them. If you are asked as a self-proclaimed witch to give an interview to a reporter or journalist, make damn sure he is for real. There are more people doing research on witchcraft now than you would imagine, but they just hang out your shingle and 
You'll find out fast. The majority of people who will want to interview you are only using it as an excuse for their own prurient interests, and seldom will an interview given to one of these types ever appear in print. If you are certain that the reporter who is interviewing you is legitimate, tell him what he wants to know. Providing it does not violate any secrets, you would be better off keeping to yourself. Whatever you do, don't pull the old ploy of acting non-communicative with the explanation that witches don't want any publicity, or that you can't give an interview because all witches want to be left alone, or any other of the nauseous hypocrisies spouted by so many public witches. If you don't want publicity, don't tell people you're a witch. In case you don't realize it, the witches become a minor celebrity and you must expect to be approached by the curious if you have proclaimed your witchyhood. It is assumed by most self-proclaimed witches that it is all right to talk of one's occult ability at a cocktail party or neighborhood gathering, but where perhaps thousands of people will know about it. Never. The reasons for this phenomenon are all too obvious to a psychologist or sociologist. The neighborhood witch can feel secure... Uh, can feel security in her own little world, knowing all the answers she must and keeping her black arts confined to her peer group where she can come forth or retreat as she so pleases. Once she has struck, stuck her head out and been recognized as a witch by multitudes of people, she is suddenly on stage and knows she'd better give a good performance or her name will be mud. The hostility of many underground witches to public witches, like Sybil Leake, Louise Hubner, et al., is not based on differences of occult opinions so much as uh, resentment that the public witches are doing what they, the underground witches, would like to do, had they the opportunity. With the cocktail party witch, fear of failure plays a large part in the reluctance to become famous. Witches who loudly proclaim their prowess to all with an earshot, yet become very reticent to talk when an interviewer is trying to get material for a story, are much like the regular customer in a bar who sings, and badly, the same two or three songs nightly, much to the sorrow of the bartender, customers, and especially the piano player whose noxious task is to accompany the great voice. If one night of grandiose announcement was made about the treat that was in store for the customers, a build-up of the singer's vocal achievements was given, a spotlight played upon him where he sat, a microphone placed before him, and a nice round of applause made, the singer would probably disappear and never be seen again. If you ever want an incompetent person to stop doing something, just put him on a stage. Another giveaway of the incompetent witch is that uh, that is common only to those who make known their art is the I can't do it for money routine. You'll find many of the would-be witches who nobly proclaim their disdain for worldly compensation for their services are like the person who can perform well as long as he's not getting paid for it, but when offered the opportunity to do the same thing for pay, will refuse. The reason for this type of behavior is that the person who is not charging for a service places the other person in a beholden position, thereby allowing the giver to call the shots. The receiver must be nice to the giver and not expect too much. If you're about to tell someone's fortune and proceed your reader, uh, your reading with the information that you cannot charge money for your services as your gift would then be made commercial, you need not worry about goofing up, as whatever you say will be a favor. It is always more difficult to succeed in business, thereby making a profit, than it is to give things away. Certainly, this doesn't mean that you must charge for your services as a witch, but if you do, it will at least be assured that your abilities are greater. 
The only reason I mention all this is because the admitted witch will be confronted by people who seek out her help for problems of all kinds. If you agree to assist those who seek your aid, you won't have time for your own enchantments. The greatest advantage in being an unknown witch is the opportunity to perform for yourself without psychic drainage from others who expect you to work on their behalf. The above ground witch is plagued by such requests. If she acts the least bit charitable, she will be vampirized by everyone she knows. The work charms for them. If she decides to capitalize on her newfound talents, figuring she'll earn a little extra money for goodies and charge a small fee, she will be expected to produce a $2 miracle complete with money-back guarantee. The best way to handle these pitfalls if you are known to others as a witch is, first and foremost, don't perform magic for others. Instruct or teach them if you must, but unless you can really feel sympathy and compassion for the other person, don't take a magical ritual on their behalf. 90% of the success of any magical ceremony is based on the genuine desire and emotion of the practitioner, and if your friend can work up enough of it for what she wants, let her learn how to work her own magic. If she can't get worked up enough over that which she would like you to obtain for her, she has no business having it in the first place. Tell your friend's fortunes, make predictions by the dozens, and be known as the girl who knows the real secrets. But don't be drained of your vital magic energy by someone who is too lazy to learn to do it herself. If anyone tells you they can't practice witchcraft because it is incompatible with their religion, it wants you to use the devil's power to help them, tell them to pray to their god, whoever he may be, but do not expect to reject Satan with one hand, yet expect a big handout from him in the other. These hypocrites are usually the type that would make good Christians because they have no faith in prayer, nor would the devil want them because they refuse to commit themselves. If you pride yourself on being a complete witch and don't care who knows it, bravo! You'll undoubtedly be asked to elucidate on your witchery by those who are genuinely interested. If you are legitimately approached and asked for a statement that may appear in the air or in print, be gracious and give whatever kind of interview the sincerity of the reporter commands. If he is a bore, treat him to a large serving of misinformation, so far-fetched that it will be apparent to anyone with intelligence that you're putting him on. If your interviewer is objective and sincere as an approach, treat him the same way, graciously that is, avoiding any of the aforementioned sanctimony about we witches don't want publicity. If you are antagonistic to publicity, don't ever place yourself in a publicly-oriented situation where you have to say so. We see altogether too many of these publicity-shy types being interviewed, and it is safe to assume that no one had to bind and gag them to get them to the TV studio or hold a gun at their head to get them to open the door for the reporter. You must expect to run into scoffers. If they're worth bothering you, just size them up accordingly to their position on the synthesizer. Use a little of the Law of the Forbidden, Flat, flatter them a bit, and you'll have them eating out of your hand. People often scoff because they don't understand. If they scoff and know nothing about what constitutes magic and witchcraft, you know it's because they don't understand. Those that understand a subject and still scoff may have something worthwhile to say, but he who is ignorant of the subject and scoffs is like the rustic who saw the giraffe and said, That ain't no such animal. Scoffers are always the easiest to bewitch, just as they are the easiest marks on the carnival lot, once you learn how to handle them. Just remember the line in Dracula, where Professor Van Helsing says, The power of the vampire lies in that no one believes in him.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, this goes for uh, witches or witchcraft, uh, witches or warlocks, uh, Satanists who want to make a name for themselves. They want to give interviews, but they've never actually done it before. So their excitement uh, is greater than their ability to communicate. There's nothing worse than someone speaking on someone else's behalf, on a religion's behalf, who doesn't know shit about themselves and doesn't know shit about the subject at hand. It only makes the religion, Satanism in this case, look infantile and childish. And unfortunately, that's the perception that a lot of people have about Satanism. Whenever uh, someone online who's never seen me or no, doesn't know my age hears that I'm a Satanist, I get the often uh, received response of, you're a teenager living in your parents' basement. You'll grow up and you'll grow out of it. <laughs> Grown-ass man. This is a real, valid religion that produces results when used to your benefit. There is nothing infantile or childish about siding with the devil in whatever culture and using the power that they grant you. There's strength in that. But if you can't present that, if you cannot project that, you are doing a disservice to it. So please stop before you start. Yeah, exactly, Zach. <laughs> exactly. All right, this is the last section. It's not very long, and this is going to end Stanic Witch. Damn, we might be right on time. How to break the news. How do you break the news to your family? friends, and associates that you are a witch. Start out kidding. Very few people will get angry if they think you're not serious, unless they're right out of the Middle Ages in their thinking, and be warned, there are still some around. The majority, however, will accept you as a witch, so long as you keep lighthearted about it. It will be easy enough to spot those who want to take you more seriously, and subsequently admit your sincerity to them. You won't run into any static from men, as a rule, but women must be handled carefully, especially mothers and mothers-in-law. Just because I said earlier in the book that a potentially complete witch usually has difficulty getting along with women, I didn't mean that she shouldn't be able to get along well with women, should it be necessary. If you can charm another woman, you can charm her man, and at times that may be necessary. If you happen to be thrown into a situation whereby another woman's husband indicates that he is strongly attracted to you, and you want to keep them both as friends, a degree of tact is necessary. This is all too common an occurrence which can develop into a decidedly sticky mess. These are definitely times when it pays not to try and charm another woman's husband, especially in what purports to be an extremely rewarding friendship between couples. It would be unfair to you to have to stifle your charms in order to keep things harmonious, 
Yet, any display of seductiveness on your part can give the most platonic relationship a hint of more carnal pursuits. Many married persons will actually do all they can to encourage an illicit relationship from their spouse, who, thinking themselves dutiful, unknowingly avoid any such encounters their mates might set up. I wish I had a dollar for each time I encountered such a situation. A husband who finds the idea of his wife dallying with other men stimulating is far more common than would ever be thought. This phenomenon occurs with the greatest frequency in marriages of 10 years or over. Consider this. When your husband leaves you wide open for sedu uh, seduction, it doesn't mean he doesn't love you anymore, but that he is vicariously acting out his demonic in your body. Before you consider how not to charm another woman's husband, first consider, if you are married, whether your husband, consciously or otherwise, really wants you to charm the other guy. Don't readily expect an honest answer, though, should you come out flat-footed and ask hubby. Few men want to admit to such planned cuckoldery. Should they be so inclined? There are those who become swingers, not really getting much out of their affairs with other women, simply as an excuse as encouragement for their wives to consort with other men, which produces for them much more erotic gratification than their own liaisons. If you have such a husband, remember, he is placing his demonic in your body and therefore assumes your sexual response to be as surface as his own. When you make it with another man, don't make the hearts and flowers seen as well, but limit it to how he wants to see you. You're a sex-crazed spouse with hot pants. If he demands to hear the gory details, as so many do, tell him exactly what he wants to hear. Knowing his predilections, fetishes, etc., as you do. Don't let him think you are in love with anyone other than him, though, nor indicate that you cannot cool off once your cravings are spent. If you see that it is imperative to keep another woman's husband at bay, the best thing to do, rather than stifle your witchiness, is to spend more time ingratiating yourself with the wife and less with the husband. Get her so convinced that you couldn't care less about her husband that she will almost feel sad that she's married to such an unattractive creep. If you do this well enough, praising her husband for all of his fine qualities, yet making it obvious that he is sexually unappetizing, you'll find she will be the one whose demonic will be hurt at your rejection of her hubby. Then, as hubby champs at the bit over you, she'll find herself almost encouraging you to turn on the charm in a way that will surprise you. It will be as though she wants assurance that her husband can attract you by making it appear as though you are playing up to her husband. No woman likes to think that no one else wants her husband, but pride insists that she calls the shots insofar as when, how, and where. The formula, therefore, is to concentrate on befriending the wife, acknowledging the husband's many non-sexual attributes, act as though you aren't the least bit interested in anything other than a platonic relationship, and you'll soon have the most possessive wife practically throwing her husband at you. The issue is not how not to charm another man's husband, or another woman's husband, but how to charm another woman's husband and make her love every minute of it. The truly successful witch is the gal who you've heard discussed by other women who say good-naturedly and right in front of their embarrassed husbands, you ought to meet her. What a doll and what Frank here wouldn't do to have a fling with her. The best witches are those who have had to go through their lives getting along with women and then, having learned what the lesson, start learning the tricks in this book. The witch who can charm men well, but falls to pieces if called to task in a group of women, cannot call herself a complete witch.
For most of your charming women should be duck soup. You've probably been concentrating on it all your lives without knowing it. If the occasion arises where you must ingratiate yourself with another of your own sex, just see it that you present no apparent competition, sweep the law of the forbidden temporarily under the carpet, and get out your most sexless clothes. You can't lose, unless she's a lesbian or a guy in drag. Breaking the news to your children is easy without the need to be dishonest. Small children are always fascinated with the strange, fantastic, and magical. And to have a mommy who is the personification of all that is indeed a wonderful thing. Young children do not have to be taught to accept the magic in life. They know it exists. They're already witches and warlocks. You will just be rejoining them. When the rain is softly beating on the windows, you can tell them of your craft, embellishing the starkness of manipulation with the fairy lore that will never die, and they will be your guides as you soar forth upon the night wind. What of those who read these words and take these secrets with, with them? What if all the carnal world should reel with complete witches plying their art? Who then would be their quarry? Fear not. You cannot battle nature and win though it would appear transitionally to be so. Even the men who read this book and think they know all the tricks will still tumble as they always are. You can't erase millions of years of human response simply by knowing why you do the thing you do, not if the concern for the rules of the chase. Religions and ideologies will come and go, and the games will begin and end, but man's basic nature will remain the same. Yet only through understanding himself will he be able to embrace and cherish the demon within him. Then he can revel in his nature and, feeling glad, move on to the final solution. That's it. That is a satanic witch. Bravo. There is a bit of an about the author at the end, um, but it's written by Blanche Barton, but um, her book, uh, Anton LaVey, The Secret Life of a Satanist, it's just a little excerpt from there, or a bit of a summary from there, which was re-released not too uh, far from now, so you should definitely pick it up if you don't have it already. It's a fantastic read. I mean, it's great. Really, really great. Uh, and the revised version with more information uh, about his passing and stuff and the fallout of it uh, is very, very interesting. But that's it for this series of Satanic Witch Reading Loud Live. Thank you all so much. Um, I hope you enjoyed this. I hope uh, it has inspired you to read it for yourself and to pick up a copy of your own and study it. This is something that, again, if you're a witch, you will continuously go back to. Um, and if you're not a witch and you're just moving about your life, then you shouldn't be listening to this, <laughs> to be fair. Is this the first time that you guys have gotten through this? Uh, is it your third? Let me know. I want to know. If you've read this yourself, sound off in the chat room.
if you haven't, but you're planning on it, or you started, but you never quite finished it, no shame, nothing wrong with it, let us know. I think it's interesting. Uh, you're very welcome, Behemoth. <laughs> Your copy is dog-eared. Dog-eared. Uh, with notes written in the margins. Yeah, it's great. It's great. So, William, uh, am I planning to do Satan Speaks or the Devil's Notebook? Uh, I think the next book I'm going to do in the Reading Aloud Live series, um, specifically Satanic Volumes and stuff, is going to be Might is Right. Uh, I reached out to Magister Slaughter to see if he would mind if I read his definitive edition, because I also have the Bugby version. Um, I know it's copyrighted. I mean, I, I know it's um, public domain, and I can just read whatever the hell I want from it, because whatever. But I reached out out of respect, because he compiled it, and it took him a very long time to do it with other people helping him. And so I asked him if he would be okay with it. I haven't heard back from him, so I may just be reading the public uh, copyright free public domain version of it. It's not like the definitive issue that he released. But, you know, it'll still be a good one. <laughs> it'll still be good. Plus, the Bugby Want version, um, even though I, I think the guy's a douchebag, uh, it actually has a forward by the doctor. So that's a bonus. I could read that. That'd be fun. So who knows? I don't know. We'll see what we can do. Um, that being said, as far as like uh, Satan Speaks to the Devil's Notebook, when I was running a Patreon account, I had um, satanic essay readings and discussions about individual essays that are found in those volumes in addition to some of um, the maestros and some other uh, Church of Satan administration essays and stuff like that. Um, and so I may go back to that in time, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know. The, the, the balancing act I'm trying to play here is to encourage the idea of study, not worship, is to encourage people to read these volumes. And sometimes it's nice to read it yourself, but you don't get the tone or maybe there's a passive understanding to listening that you may discover over your reading it. And so I find that a very interesting dynamic as well. Um, and everyone learns things differently, right? Some people are visual, some people are um, auditory, some people read it internally in their own minds um, and they understand it in different ways. And, and so that's really what this is all about. Uh, thank you all so much for tuning in again. Uh, live chat, you guys are fucking awesome. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. And uh, all of you witches, cheers. Slanja. Hail Satan. Mm. Love me some witches. All right, everyone. Until next time. Actually, you know, if you have any questions or comments, if you want to learn more, uh, okay, if you have any questions or comments about this show, info at reverendcampbell.com. Uh, if you want to learn more about Satanism, check out churchofsatan.com. Read the Standard Bible yourself. Read the Standard Scriptures yourself. Uh, understand them, because that's going to tell you everything you need to know. Um, and until next time we do one of these, I'll say it, everyone. <laughs>